What's up, guys? It's time to go Behind the Bum. What's up, guys? Welcome to this episode of Behind the Bum. Um, I was recently asked to do an episode about being a sex addict. And I know that's probably a difficult thing to talk about. So I just posted on my story. I was like, hey, like, does anybody or has anybody ever identified as being a sex addict? So I found this one man who had the absolute most interesting story I've ever heard in a while. So it's not exactly what I was going for for this episode, but like, we'll see what it turns into. But basically, this episode is going to be about, I guess, how you maybe have identified as a sex addict wrongly and came out of it on top. So my guest today is Harris Stevens. So welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. And I am really excited to talk about like my experience with um, sex addiction and the five million other things attached to it. <laughs> and I'm you know, glad to share all the all the details and bits that I can. Okay, so give everybody a little bit of a backstory because I know right now you live in New York. So where did you grow up that this all like stemmed from? Yeah, so I grew up in um, the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina, which is in the South, but it's a pretty big city. Um, But with that aside, I grew up in a sort of fundamentalist evangelical community. And my um, parents decided to homeschool my siblings and I um, because they couldn't afford Christian school and they didn't want us to learn evolution in public school. So homeschooling was the middle ground. Um, So I grew up very religious, very strict, and that's kind of the backdrop for why I was diagnosed as a sex addict. Um, I went to college at a small Christian school in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, Um, and that is where I first started, um, I'm not going to call it therapy because he wasn't a therapist, I started Christian counseling, and that's where I first kind of uh, got diagnosed as a sex addict. So did this start basically because you were gay, though? Yes, definitely. So um, the school I went to was pretty small, about a thousand students. And they had three Christian counselors. Like they weren't licensed psychologists or therapists. They had done training, but they were like biblical counselors on staff, two women and one man. And it was a free service for students, which I think a lot of you know schools these days have that. But um, my when I was 18, my sophomore year of college, I had kind of come to grips with the fact that I was gay, which was something that had taken me a long time to admit to myself. Um, And so I started going to counseling at the school with the the one male counselor. Um, And a couple sessions in, I just told him, I'm gay. And the first thing he said is, no, you're not. You're same-sex attracted. And, And then he turned to Romans and he brought up the passage about, um, you know, how men sleeping with men, women with women is an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, something like that. Um, and that kind of started my journey in counseling and therapy and sex addiction. He didn't diagnose me as a sex addict right away. Um, that was like a few sessions later. I don't remember exactly how many, but it was like, I think two or three sessions later that he kind of brought that up. 
um, has. So when you're when you're at the school, right? Like you're obviously living away from home, right? Yes. Okay, so I'm assuming the other people around you were they also like identify as like gay or lesbian going through like a similar thing as you, or were you kind of like, did you feel like you were like targeted and singled out for being gay? Looking back, I know that I was targeted. In the moment, I was very isolated um, as like a queer person because the school was a religious school. So there were really strict rules about what you couldn't and could, could and couldn't do. And um, you weren't allowed to be gay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, in a Christian school, I'm sure they're like totally like blinded. And obviously I'm not saying they're uneducated, but I mean, they are very uneducated. Well, they're not uneducated. They they know what's going on. They were actually one of the schools visited by the, um, not the Freedom Riders, but there was the gay version of the Freedom Riders in the 2000s. They had this bus and they went to Christian schools to protest. My school was one of the ones that was visited by that. I can't remember the name of that, of that uh, movement. But um, anyways, my school was visited by them. So they weren't uneducated. They knew what's going on in the world. And they had a really sophisticated way of dealing with it. And part of that sophistication was keeping people separate, not allowing, like, the, you know, several times students asked for like, can we have like a, a gay Christian support group on campus for those of us who struggle with this sin, but are trying to be faithful. And they were, no, completely not. We're not gonna let you gather. You know, you can't really know each other. Um, and there was just also such a, such a culture of guilt and shame around, especially sex, um, sexual related sins that, you know, an individual is never going to disclose to many people that they struggle with sexuality. So you never knew the other people within your class who were going through the same thing you were going through essentially, or did you? Not while I was there. Um, after graduating and kind of coming out of all that, I've connected with some people who have also come out of that. But while I was there, um, I didn't, although there were two men who came out publicly while I was in school. Well, one who came out publicly, he wrote an article for the student newspaper uh -huh. about his struggle with same-sex attraction and his commitment to um, celibacy, to be, you know, sort of faithful to the beliefs of the church. Um, because that's how they dealt with it. It's like, it's not wrong to be gay, but you can't act on it. And you need to either be celibate or you need to marry a, a woman. I just can't imagine even like, let's just like look from a woman's standpoint for a second. Like, can you imagine if like meeting a female at school and she's like, oh, he's gay, but he promised he won't act upon it. Like, it's just like, who chooses to even like, what woman would even want to sign up for that? Well, my girlfriend actually. Oh did. my God, here you go. <laughs> And I know we're veering off of sex addiction at this point, but yeah, I, my, my girlfriend in college, who I started dating junior year, um, I told her that I was struggling with same-sex attraction. And that night was the night we then had our first kiss, uh, which was the first kiss either of us had ever had. And- um, Ever, ever? Ever, ever. Oh! Yeah. And that was when I was, it was a junior. We were both juniors. And- um, and later, you know, we ended up breaking up for lots of reasons. One of them being that I was gay. <laughs> but, you know, she really did love me. And I think that's one thing that 
sometimes can get lost in these situations is that it, we weren't going to work out. We have both had a lot of things. I had a lot of things I was going through and needed to be free of, but there was a genuine sense of love. And um, I just have to credit her for that. She was a very loving and understanding person given our circumstances. So let me like backtrack a minute though. <laughs> yeah. so I'm assuming though, when you're in the school and they say, hey, you're a sex addict, what are some of the things you're like not allowed to do? I'm assuming you, they probably say like, you can't masturbate, right? Like, I mean. Well, that was, yeah, that was a given already. Um, you shouldn't be masturbating or looking at porn. You shouldn't even entertain like lustful thoughts. Um, you know, like your goal is like kind of basically a completely neutered sexuality. <laughs> um, I actually once had a, a, a friend quoting a pastor said that um, sex is like a playground and the fence around the playground is marriage. So as long as you're in the playground, you can do whatever you want. But if you're outside the playground, you shouldn't be doing anything at all. Interesting. Which, yeah, it's a terrible analogy for lots of reasons, but. But I mean, I, I feel like everybody will totally get that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you are growing up then, have you, did you like never masturbate then? Or did you obviously like secretly try it out? But you were like, fuck, now I have to try again to not do it. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and my parents were very strict with what we could consume media wise, like music, TV, all that. Uh -huh. But when I was, I guess, 14 or 15, I got an iPod touch and I don't think my parents realized the capabilities that an iPod touch had for <laughs> the internet. And I didn't either, honestly. And then I got it and I was like, oh, I can Google naked men. Oh yeah, you can get deep on that thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what happened was I you know, got into the cycle of like, oh, I really like this. And I'm, um, I mean, that's how I learned what masturbation was, is I like, somebody said it, like one of my peers said it in like a homeschool thing and I had never heard of it and I Googled it later. And that's how I learned about it. Um, and, but I wasn't a cycle like you're saying of like, I would, you know, one night masturbate and or look at porn. And then I would just feel crushingly guilty. Um, I made a lot of promises to God about like, God, you know, don't make me tell my parents. And if you don't, then I, I won't ever listen to Lady Gaga again. <laughs> no, I feel that too, because I grew up going to a, um, like private Catholic school my whole life. And like my class was like a hundred people per grade. My mom was my first grade teacher. Like it was like a whole ass to do. So like the thought of ever saying the term, like I'm gay was obviously mortifying, right? Like, I mean, it was just like naughty. It didn't even like cross my mind that that would ever come out of my mouth. I figured like, if I chose not to be gay, I don't have to be gay. You know, like I thought like, it'll be like my choice at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. So when, I don't know, like, I just feel like growing up in that religious environment, if you will. Yeah. I used to like, I don't know, like, let's say I like got home from school and I'd force myself to like watch like lesbian porn because I was like, oh, if wow. I watch this for like 30 minutes, yeah, maybe it'll turn me on. So I would like start jerking off to like lesbian porn, trying to just like get a boner and be like, okay, like maybe just like stare at her butt because like her butt's kind of hot you know and yeah. then <laughs> I would like reward myself that like the last 10 minutes 
I could watch gay porn and like finish off. Yeah, yeah. But as long as the gay porn wasn't longer than the lesbian porn, I was like improving. That's yeah. like how fucked up my brain got. No, I completely relate. Like all these little bargains we make with ourselves at that age. And I think adults still do it too. And that's, I think that's probably part of sex addiction, but all these ways you try to justify what you're doing and be like, well, it's okay. And I'm not bad. And, you know, I don't need to worry about the guilt and et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is how murderers feel. <laughs> is that bad? <laughs> but I think that part of the problem is like, whether, whether you're religious or not, our society in general really puts a stigma on sexuality. Um, so like, I mean, I think if, even if you're not gay, you probably feel weird about masturbating, right? Like, I don't know. I've never asked a straight person, like, did you never feel guilty about masturbating? Like, were you always cool with it, dude? So you want to know what I think is interesting at this point is, I don't know if it's because we live in New York, but I could say, I would say like from September to like June, I feel like I'm like gay as hell. Like I am in like gay school in Hell's Kitchen, like it's a big ass sorority over here and you just apartment hop and everyone's, you know, you freely talk about all this shit. Yeah. And for the summer, I usually go to the Hamptons with like all my straight friends and I'll see like my married friends and just like my friends who are single or whatever. And I can tell you, even all my straight friends, men and women, and when you're living in this house together, they'll literally, we'll be eating breakfast and my friend Joey or somebody will be like, all right, hold on. Like, I'm going to go jerk off in the shower. Just give me 20 minutes. Like, just, we freely talk about this. And like, we're all living and chilling together, but like, everybody just needs a break to jerk off. This and is your like, straight friends. Straight. Wow. Wow. And like, trust me, I've idea. tried. I would love to. I've tried. And they're just, they're straight. I mean, there's no getting around it, but it's just the point that I don't know if it's because where we live, that it's so freeing to just like openly say those things. But yeah. I do think growing up in Syracuse or maybe it's just the timeline we're living in too. Maybe it's more freely talked about, but growing up from like 2005, 2010 high school era, fuck, fuck, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think you're right. I think the timeline might have something to do with it and the location, but I'm still surprised, honestly. And maybe that's because a lot of my straight friends are still friends from college who are still very religious. So, you know, you only know they've had sex because there's a baby coming. So let me ask you this, though. I know this doesn't have to do with sex addiction. Sure. But when you have these, like, religious friends, do they look at you any differently for being gay after everything you guys have all learned? Well, that's hard for me to answer because I don't know how they look at me. Um, when I came out to them, different people responded differently. Most people responded by saying something like, I love you and I will always love you, but this is wrong. And I have to let you know that I don't condone what you're doing. Um, which at that, I think at that point I had had sex twice. So not that I was really doing much at all. Um, <laughs> I did have a couple friends who were way more understanding than I expected and who remained religious, but were kind of like, um, I'm really sorry that you were so mistreated and like, you know, I love you and I'm happy that you feel better and more free. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And I think I just credit that to like some, there were just some people who were willing to step outside of their comfort zone a little more than like most of the people that I, you know, was kind of in college with. 
Well, I would probably envision growing up in that type of situation. I feel like they would almost view it as like a plague that like if they surrounded themselves around you too much or gay people that like maybe that guy might also end up gay or you might hit on him or like, you know what I mean? So like, that's a good thing that they, I guess, have somehow in their brain learned because <laughs> I've yeah. taught that where you guys were from. Well, and I think the plague, I think the plague is a good analogy maybe not in the sense that, that they're afraid they'll become gay, but that they'll be tainted by like the sin, mm-hmm. you know, like association with the sin will make them also more sinful. So they need to kind of keep it at arm's length. And it might like the sin they're afraid of might not be becoming gay, but it might be, you know, having an affair, a straight affair, a heterosexual affair, or um, looking at porn and masturbating themselves, which is something they are afraid of. Like it might be something different, but that they're still afraid, right, of that kind of contagion. So when you, I'm assuming you graduated from this place, right? I did. I was actually um, student body president my senior year. Wow. Yeah, biggest joke I ever played. That is amazing. I mean, great resume builder. So like, if none else, like, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) They also gave me like a pretty hefty scholarship. And I look back and I'm just like, man, I really scammed y'all. If they could only see you now. <laughs> oh, the, yeah. I mean, they, uh, they're small enough. They know, what's, they know what I do. And I've done, like, a few kind of, you know, um, provocative. Well, provocative in the sense that I've, like, had some different things I've said or, like, media I've put out specifically addressing the way the school treats queer people. So uh-huh. I'm on the radar, at least a little bit. So when you, you obviously moved to New York, I'm assuming, after school. I did, 2017. So two years after I graduated from college. Okay. Yeah. So we are obviously the same age. Um, so when you came here, is that when your brain like opened up that you were like, okay, like I'm gonna act upon being gay now? Um, coming here. Well, yes, in short. Yes. But kind of what happened was I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, I was initially diagnosed with that sex addiction label when I was sophomore 18. And um, part of why I didn't push back at that age was because I was so inundated in that community and in that thinking that I just assumed a Christian counselor was right. I didn't you know, think like, oh, maybe he's overstepping his boundaries here. And he basically just asked me, he's like, do you look at gay porn? And I was just like, well, I try not to. But sometimes, yeah. And he's like, well, I think you're probably, you know, addicted. Um, and it's crazy because that label, like him, that that was it. That was the addiction. That was the diagnosis and everything. And that carried with me for then um, almost six years. Did you and, at that point on your iPod Touch start Googling what sex addiction was? And did it like freak you out that that's what you had? No, I didn't Google it. I didn't look into it. I just accepted like because I was so conditioned to believe that I was like a sinner and that I was just completely broken, just beyond repair, that when somebody confirmed that by saying you're an addict, I was just like, yes, you're right. How can I, can you, can you fix me? How can you help me? I want to, you know, I want to be better. I don't want to go to hell. Um, and so I was very pliable in that regard. So no, I never, I, I didn't look up sex addiction until after I was pretty sure I wasn't an addict. <laughs> That is so crazy. Yeah. And um, going back to your question about when I came to New York, when I came to New York, 
I had been previously then actually with a therapist, like a psychologist, post the Christian counseling, and had been doing one-on-one with him as well as like he did a group of 10 men, group therapy. Um, and everyone in the group was there because they had sexual problems. Not that only a few of them were like struggling with uh homosexuality but um everyone there like had something going on like for most of them it was like it was either porn or just kind of serial infidelity um and because he was also a psychologist and carried more weight when the group was referred to as the sex addicts group I was just like yeah you know tracks it's what I've been told um and so when I came to New York even though I had left the church at that point and come out as gay and like was moving towards being comfortable with that and not thinking it was wrong. I was still carrying this belief that I was like so broken and that, you know, at this point, well, the broken part is that I'm a sex addict. Um, and so I moved to New York in the summer of 2017. And because I was no longer in therapy, I started going to a sex addicts anonymous um, in Manhattan. And I went twice a week for six months, six or seven months. Um, and it wasn't until kind of, you know, I left that program that I realized like, wait a second, I'm not a sex addict. This whole six year, this whole six year deal has been a farce. What's going on? That, okay. So like when you went, how long did you go to these meetings for like the two times a week? Um, six, six or seven months in New York. I started, I moved here in July. I probably started going into July or August and I stopped going the following March or April. Wow. Yeah. How many people attend these sex addiction meetings SAA um how many came I went to one that was fairly robust there's several that meet in New York they have a website you can look them up sex addicts anonymous um and there let's see how many people came on average probably I went to the 7 7 a.m meeting in Manhattan that was probably it varied but I'm gonna say like 20 to 30 people on average like a good amount, like a classroom type situation. Yeah. So kind of scary to walk into, but, um, you know, a robust enough group of people to feel like you're not alone. Almost all men, there was one woman who came regularly to that meeting. I think there were a couple more kind of in the, in the wider community that came. Uh huh. And that particular meeting I went to was mostly like, you know, working men who were coming before they would go to the office for the day. So in these meetings, is it similar to, let's say, like AA that you would see on television that most people can relate to that? It's kind of like you maybe introduce yourself and then you start sharing stories about what you may have overcome or some thoughts you have. Yes, it is very similar. Um, And I had been doing, like I said, group therapy for at that point I had done group therapy in, in Tennessee for like over about two years. But one way that. SAA is different than therapy is that there's no like appointed leader. Um, there is like a group of people who are elected by the group to manage like the finances and like the newsletter, like communication, like some people like that, but it's all very democratic. Um, and then each time somebody would start the meeting by saying like the pledge. Um, and I don't remember the pledge at this point, but I'm sure you could find it online. Some of this I've kind of just like, wiped out my memory like I don't want to hold on to that let it go yeah it's like being told you have whatever I mean 
what I forgot the name of the disease, but it's almost like, you know, when like a parent tells a kid like, oh, you have cancer or something, you're going to die, you're sick. You grow up thinking that for so many years that there's something wrong with you. So to like realize there's not actually something wrong with you. It's like, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I was really angry at first. Um, I still get really angry about it looking back. Actually. So backtracking slightly, did yeah. your parents put you in this situation? <laughs> Indirectly. Um, not, they um, were insistent that I go to a Christian college. Okay. They didn't require me to start therapy. That was like my own choice. Um, and when I came out to my parents, um, when I was 18, I came out over Thanksgiving. I didn't know using a holiday for ourselves. <laughs> uh, when I was like, I'm going to come, I'm going to come out to my dad over Thanksgiving because um, I can then go back to school. And if things go really south, then I can stay with a friend over Christmas and figure out life after that. Um, but when I came out the first time I came out, not as gay, but as like, I'm same sex attracted and I'm going to be celibate or marry a woman. So I'm still a Christian. Don't worry. And my parents were, you know, like, we're really sorry. We really feel bad for you. And we want to help you on this journey, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they were sort of helpful along the way. Um, when I started seeing like, like when I started seeing the psychologist, um, the summer that I was 20, they like helped me pay for it. Um, um, so they were kind of, you know, part of it, but <laughs> they were part of it sort of indirectly. They weren't very invasive. And I think in part because they just didn't really want to know, you know, they didn't want to know what was going on. Or, they, didn't wanna, yeah. they didn't want to be in the loop. They didn't want to ask questions. They didn't want to know the answers to. Yeah. So. I was just wondering if like, they were reporting like the school was like reporting back to your parents being like he's making great progress he's has a girlfriend now you know what i mean like they weren't but this is crazy so i um had been seeing the school counselor sophomore year junior year and then after junior year that summer between junior and senior year uh, my girlfriend who I mentioned she and i broke up at the end of junior year um and then over the summer i had sex with a man for the first time um, which is a, cr a crazy story in itself. But then after that, I just felt so guilty that I like called my church, scheduled a meeting with my pastor. And then I think the next day I met with him, one of our pastors, it was a fairly big church. And he is the one who helped me get in with the psychologist in the city because they had kind of a working relationship with him. Um, and, you know, like for a college student, a psychologist is not cheap. I didn't have insurance. I don't come from money. Like, and I, told him like I can't pay for this so the church paid for I think it was around 60 50 or 60 percent of my um visits but a prerequisite was that if they were going to pay for my visits I had to you know sign over my information to the pastor so that the psychologist and the pastor could discuss what went on and like I had to like you know like the HIPAA forms where you can say yeah, like that's like almost like your guardian at that point that it's like they know what's going on um, it's not, not like, I'm not gonna, I'm not a, he wasn't like a conservator, like I'm no Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, it was purely a release of information. But yeah, like, and it was kind of held over me that like, at any point, you know, 
pastor and psychologist may meet. And if they do, pastor can ask, how's Harris doing? And psychologist will tell him. And if I hadn't signed that over, they wouldn't have paid for it. And looking back now, I'm like, hmm, this sounds like abuse. Wow. <laughs> but at the time, I was just like, I'm so grateful. Like, thank you so much. So I'm going to ask you a bold question. And I really think everyone is open to their own opinions. So everybody listening, don't bash anybody that gets sad because this is just a free flowing conversation. So do you think sex addiction is real? From what you've seen and heard and experienced? <laughs> That's a great question. My, <laughs> I'm... um. My impulse is to give kind of a squirrely answer and say, I'm not sure, but I don't, my bold answer is no, I don't think it's real. And the reason that I think that is, I, I definitely believe in unhealthy sexuality and that we can have sexual habits or practices that are bad for us. Like, I don't think it, that sexuality is like a free for all, do whatever you want all the time. Um, and I also think like we can form habits that involve sexuality that are unhealthy. Like, okay, if I can't go to sleep without masturbating, you know, I don't think that's a moral failure, but I don't think it's like the healthiest choice for you as a human because that's not a very adaptive way to live. But are you an addict who needs treatment for that? Like, no. And then some of the more severe cases that I encountered um, with group members, both in therapy and at Sex Addicts Anonymous, you know, they would describe situations that really would kind of shock you. Um, you know, think like, I'm talking hypothetically here, but you know, like I was uh, MIA for my wife and kids for five days because I was like, you know, high on coke and like having sex with prostitutes in this like den in Times Square. And I like woke up out of it, like, and I didn't realize it was Thursday, <laughs> like yeah. things like that. But I'm like, yeah, that's bad. That is unhealthy. You should not do that. I'm not sure it's fair to say that you're a sex addict because of that. And I'm going to go oh, go ahead. Almost, I think if I, if I'm thinking about it, mm -hmm. I would say, I would say in my short answer, I do think there's, I, I guess my answer is, I don't really think sex addiction is real, but I will agree with you on the sense that I do think we can gain these habits that you become so accustomed to, or something from your past makes you feel like, I don't know, like, for example, let me just give a couple examples to defend yeah. myself. Please. So first off, I think, for example, this whole working from home situation, right? I live alone. I have friends that live alone, whatever. I might sit here naked and just like randomly jerk off during lunch or whatever, because I'm bored. I might be listening on a zoom meeting, but on my phone, I might be watching porn because I'm just horny and bored. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. are all things that we're probably gaining that are just like making us more sexual or just out of boredom. I don't even know. Right. So I would say if when people start going back to work, if all of a sudden these random like sudden horniness urges keep occurring, yeah, like makes you unable to focus on your job. Or I think if sex intervenes with what you actually need to be doing throughout the day, then that's yes. 
what I would view as a problem. Yeah, I agree. Totally. And like, I think that I think that one of the best comparisons is between sex and food, like not between sex and alcohol or sex and drugs, because alcohol and drugs are both unnecessary substances. Mm -hmm. Like we can live without them. And so if you are experiencing unhealthy habits with alcohol and drugs, it's okay as a strategy to just be like, I'm just going to not do it anymore at all. That's gone. And that will remove that problem. But with sex and food, those are both two things that are um, vital because you can't get rid of your sex organs. Like you've got them. Um, Even people who experience a really low sex drive or might identify as asexual still have like sexual organs. Like it's not something you can remove. You have have hormones. Yeah. Like they're going to rise. Sometimes you're naturally still going to wake up with a boner, whether you choose to use it or not. Like you still got it. Right. You, you are a human in a human body Um, in the same way that like we can have unhealthy habits with food. Um, but we can't just say, well, I'm just not going to eat because you'll die. Yeah. Um, eventually. And I think that like, that's where, like, for me, like I love chips so much, potato chips, Doritos, you name it. (laughs) Doritos sticks are my shit lately. And Takis. I love some Takis. I've never Um, had Taki. They're great. They're like a little spicy, but (laughs) I like them because they're spicy enough that I won't eat a whole bag in one sitting. It's a nice, like kind of um self-control mechanism i know once you start the bag it's like you're half the arm deep you just got to keep going well and that's like there are times when i have a bad day and i might go to the bodega and buy a bag of doritos and it doesn't fix my problem but it does make me feel a little bit better i i I hear you nachos or cool ranch yes yes and i think that sex can be something similar like okay i have a bad day I'm going to masturbate and it's going to make me feel a little better or I'm feeling really anxious. I'm going to masturbate and it's going to make me feel a little less anxious. It's okay to use things to help you and make you feel better, but you also can't think that those things are going to solve your problems. Like, okay, I bought the bag of chips because I was having a bad day because my boss yells at me all the time. I can't just keep buying bags of chips and expect that boss to go away. I have to confront the problem eventually. And I think the same can be said of sex. Like if I'm bored all the time and I'm just always masturbating to get rid of boredom, the boredom is never going to go away. Eventually I have to confront the boredom and be like, okay, what am I going to do to change my life so that I'm not bored all the time? Yeah. And it's okay to use temporary salves like sex or food, but you can't expect them to change your problem. And I think that's part of the problem with sex addiction as like a, a diagnosis. And at least that's the problem with treating sex addiction the same way we treat alcohol addiction is that you can't just remove sex and expect the problems that are driving that behavior to go away. I get that. That makes total sense. I also, I want to bring this up before I forget. So I think that for gay men in particular, I don't know if like lesbians are sexually driven, whatever, but gay men, we are built to like, I don't know, like post slutty photos, like everyone posts hoe photos. I don't care how chiseled you are, how body like self-conscious you are. Like everybody has hoe photos. Yeah. And when you are on Grindr, it is like expected of you to send those within the first five minutes of a conversation or you know you're getting zero replies. Like I will get (laughs) whole dick 
and like something penetrating your hole before I even get a hello. What if you don't, then you're like, wait, is this true love? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And so I feel like it's when you hear the word sex addiction, it almost seems like everybody in the gay community is a sex addict because we are accustomed to leading with naked photos or seeing naked photos. I mean, just even like on the traveling bum alone. I mean, I have over 100, 200 naked things I go through every single morning, like butts, dicks. Like I don't ask for this, but that's what I wake up to. So when I even like look at porn or like see pictures on Grindr of a guy, I'm like, I don't, this does nothing for me. Like I'm so sick of like the nakedness of, and I would love to have like a more personal connection, but I think the gay community is so accustomed to just like showing everything they got. Yeah. And it's almost comes off in a way to me, like a sex addiction in a way, because we're built to just like expect that that's the norm. I, I agree 95%. The only thing I'm going to push back on is the word built. And I'm going to replace that with conditioned. Um, And I, I, this is, I think this is a really great point you're making. And I've thought about this some, and I think about when I was in um, middle school and high school youth group. Um, and we granted we were like, you know, hyper Christian, but all the time we were told like, boys, you're going to struggle with lust because you're just little horn dogs running around trying to do sexy things and girls, you got to be modest and you got to keep them from doing that. And so from a young age, we're taught like, okay, one of my defining features as a man is that I'm horny all the time. And we're never given an option to think like. I can be horny um, like when I want to be and like I can I can take ownership of that horniness and I can do what I want to do with it. I don't have to just be like a slave to it. Um, And then I think part of what happens with the gay community is there's this kind of longstanding I mean like thousands of years tradition of like sexual politics between men and women and part of that is like women you know, traditionally have to avoid having sex because it was tied to their value in society or they might get pregnant and that could be, you know, like a major life of people for a woman historically. You remove those sexual politics and just put a bunch of men together who have been taught their whole life, like you're an uncontrollable horn dog. There's no risk of pregnancy. There's no like family life to worry about. Then like, yeah, it's a free for all. Like, what do you expect? See, I think sometimes, and I, I notice this, I think a lot of it stems too from like fiending for actual emotion and chemistry with someone. Yeah. That I think a lot of people think, and I mean, I've even done this, that I think like I'm talking to a guy for a week and I, I think a natural thing you match with someone on Bumble or Tinder, like something that's going to go in your head. Maybe it's a psychopath move or not. You're like, oh my God, like, is this my husband? Like, am I going to marry this person? Like, you just start thinking some things like, okay, like whatever it might be. And so then when you meet the person and you realize, oh, it's just sex. Yeah. Or you're like, oh, I might be able to change this person, whatever it might be. You end up having sex. Then you come, which is like the ultimate thing. And then the person leaves or you're laying in bed alone and you're like, what the fuck was the point of that? I'm so lonely. (laughs) You either feel lonely 
you go right back to where you felt before you even felt on the date. And it's like, I feel like what everyone's fiending for and they think what sex is going to solve is this like heightened emotion with someone that it just, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, um, I was thinking about this before we got on the call, but, and I just, there was an article I read like a year and a half ago by a sex therapist and I cannot remember her name or the article and I was racking my brain for it. But basically what she said was that we all have different reasons for having sex. And she listed like a few common ones, like physical pleasure, um, a sense of adventure, emotional intimacy, like you're describing, um, comfort, safety. Like we as individuals have a collection of motivations for having sex. And when we go to have sex with somebody, we're looking for those motivations to be fulfilled. And they can change from time to time. Like, you know, on a Saturday night, I'm looking for a sense of adventure, but on a Sunday morning, I just want emotional connection. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like you're saying, like we use sex to mask these desires. I think you're totally right. And I think that comes from um, not self-examining our own motives and realizing like, oh, like I feel horny because I really want some excitement. So I'm going to go get that. Or I feel horny because I actually feel pretty alone. And um, having sex with a stranger is not going to fix that. So instead, I'm going to call my best friend. And that may not fix it either, but it's going to be a better solution than a hookup. And I think it's a little healthy. Well, I think I think it's going to be more effective. Like if you're feeling lonely, your loneliness isn't going to be maybe erased by anything but it's going to be better solved by a phone call to a friend than it is by a hookup with a stranger. Who's probably not going to treat you well. Yeah. You're right. You run that risk. Cause like maybe you show up and they're like, yeah, I'm raring for some adventure. I'm ready to like tie you up. Let's have fun. And you're like, Oh, I just kind of wanted you to make me feel special. And then you've got conflicting motivations and that's not, nobody's in the wrong here, but you're both going to leave feeling unsatisfied. Story of, gay culture i mean i don't know if like i i truly think new york is the toughest toughest place on the planet to find a true true connection and i feel like i don't know if i i mean la is obviously equally horrible um i've never lived in like other cities so i can't fully say but it really seems like it's just you come here to hook up And you know, if you are talking to someone, they're also probably talking to someone else the same way they're talking to you. I just think that in my brain the whole time, always. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a, um, a standing policy of um, unfaithful till proven faithful, you know, like, yeah, for myself too. And I tell guys that like, I'm just so you know, like, until we verbalize that we're being monogamous, like, you shouldn't expect that from me. Oh, isn't being gay a beautiful thing? <laughs> well, and I think I think New York is so bad because we have so many choices here. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know if you've heard about how, like, on cruise ships, people fall in love pretty frequently. And it's, like, sort of a common phenomenon because you're locked on a space with only, like, a limited number of choices. Like, if I lived in a small town and there were five other gay men, I would fall in love with one of them and we would make it work. See, I, my, I think it stems more from the fact that when you, when you take yourself into a happier type of situation, like, I think I'm so accustomed in New York that I am like a money hungry psycho 
Like I work so, so much that like yeah. that is my motivation. Like I give myself sure. okay. goals that are unachievable and that's what I go to do. Yeah. When I'm on vacation or I'm like in a beautiful place or like whatever, it's very easy for me to gain a stronger connection of someone because I think my brain is more like open and freeing. So when you talk about like these people on like a cruise ship or wherever they might be, I think in those moments, you're kind of like allowing love or emotion or things to come yeah. in because you're kind of out of your comfort zone and you're more open to just like being even social, you know, like, I mean, how many times do you go out somewhere in New York and it's like, here's this click, this clicks in this corner, this clicks in this corner. And you don't really mingle. It's like, why did we leave the pregame? Because no one's fucking even talking to anyone else in this place. And we're spending $22 on a drink. To see and be seen, Jeff. I know, but then it's like you go on a cruise ship or something like this and everybody's mingling with everyone and you lose your friends and you know, like, okay, well, they're on the fucking boat somewhere still. Like, I'll see them when they go back to the room. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I do think when it comes <laughs> to, like, point. chemistry, it comes down to you need to, like, really, both parties need to, like, be free and allow it and get out of their, like, rat race type brains, I think is a big problem. Yeah, yeah, that's probably, that's probably true, too. And New York is, like, such a, career-driven city you know it's a blessing and a curse blessing and a curse yeah um my friend that is all i have time for for today <laughs> like i could talk to you the rest of the day yeah um, but thank you so much for sharing that because that was extremely interesting yeah you're welcome and um i mean people can find out more about like sex addicts anonymous there's also um there's another similar group like sex addiction or something i forget but you can always google it but um i don't know i would say i think if i think if that's something you're concerned about maybe talk to a therapist first and uh deal with it on a one-on-one -on -one basis before you get into a group setting listen to harris because i have no helpful information right now <laughs> for anybody but i will try to add some links if to this podcast episode for people to research and learn more or don't you know you can always google it yourself so. i like to be nice i try that is sweet of you yeah very very nice okay well thank you guys for listening i hope you had a great valentine's day weekend and until next week goodbye bye